Welcome to Linworth Road Church, helping people become fully alive, fully mature, and fully on mission. Visit linworthroadchurch.com to learn more. It was on the column, and so I looked at those letters, letters P, letters R, letter N, letter D, numbers 1 and 2, and this little arrow pointed to the P. How did my dad do this? He, he moves this stick down, and so I moved the stick from P to N. Now, that would not have been a cause for concern, except that our driveway was on a slight incline that descended onto the road in front of our house. Now, we lived on a country road, but it was right on the outskirts of town, so it was a well-used road. So you might imagine my mother's horror when she was a door, uh, someone knocked on our door and said, your car is in the middle of the road in front of you with your son in it. It was put quite a scare in both my mom and dad, and you can bet I had a stern warning, stay out of that white Mercury station wagon. Well, middle school brings a whole new set of warnings, like don't slide into first base, or don't forget to take your artwork to school, or I'm going to have to talk to your teacher if your grades don't come up, or wait until your, your dad gets home. Then as they begin to turn to adulthood, the amps pick up quite a bit. Don't drink or hang out with so-and-so. Be home by midnight. Don't drive too fast. That skirt is too short. What will happen if you don't pass that class? You better wake up. What happens if you're late again? And of course, when they are adults, adults, the warnings often come in the versions of questions or the occasional advice when you can't resist or hold back. And sometimes, yes, sometimes even our adult children might need to hear from us a serious warning because they're now making serious decisions with long-term consequences, decisions that can't be patched over with a Band-Aid or soothed with a bowl of ice cream or corrected with a one-week grounding. All in all, we warn because we love. We warn because decisions matter. We warn because perhaps we can see the end of a course, the outcome of a thing. And we want the best for our children or that family member or our our friends. I recall a personal warning from a spiritual mentor some years ago. It came to me because I was treating a temptation lightly. And it helped me to make the necessary course adjustment. Every time I read about another pastor leaving the ministry because of a moral failure, I shudder. I shudder. It's a warning if I don't take care of myself, if I get myself way overcommitted, if I'm not emotionally connected to my sweet bride, if I place myself in a vulnerable position, it could happen to me. How about you? Do you ever need a warning, a course adjustment, before it's too late? Paul loved the members of this Corinthian church, and he was concerned they were going to waste their lives if he could not get their attention. And that's what this next scriptural section is. To put it bluntly, it's a warning. And I'd like you to stand with me as I read the scriptures. Stand, and um, you can read along page 957. It'll be on the screen behind me. But let's read the scriptures, and we'll ask God to help us to 
understand it. Chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is God's word. Father, we ask you now by the power of your Holy Spirit to take these precious, sober words and apply them to the places in our hearts that we most need them. Give us the power to believe and the power to respond. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There are three questions that will help us unfold this passage. Number one, why does Paul go backwards in history? Number two, how did sins committed hundreds of years ago relate to the Corinthians? And number three, how does this all relate to us? Here's the first question. Why does Paul go backwards in history? At the end of chapter 9, Paul said in so many words, live intentionally. Don't live without aim. Know your purpose and live your purpose. With the power of God, exercise discipline so you are not controlled or driven by temporal cravings. We do all this to obtain a prize. Paul calls it an imperishable wreath. Super Bowl winners, you might have enjoyed the game last week. Super Bowl winners train and discipline to win the Lombardi. We train and discipline our spiritual lives to lose something that will never end, that can never fail us. Then Paul provides a negative example of this. 
He points out a group of people that lived their life aimlessly, without purpose, without intention. And they were not irreligious. They were the generation of Jews that had been delivered from Egypt. The same generation that passed through the Red Sea at the Exodus. The same generation that saw manna and quail fall from the sky for their next meal. Well, the question begs to be asked, how could that generation be used as a negative example? If you look at the first few verses of this chapter, Paul uses New Testament language, sacramental language of baptism and communion to describe how the Jews too, they also in that Exodus moment had entered into a covenant with God. Yet in verse 5, it says God was not pleased with them. In verse 6, it says they gave in to evil desires. How? How? Well, he gives three examples. One, they mimicked their neighbors in creating these pagan, quasi-religious ceremonies. These feasts combine idol worship with sexual immorality and way out of bounds partying. He's referencing specifically a story outlined in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, if you want to look that story up. Two, they put God to the test. And three, they grumbled. What does this mean? I think these latter two are really two sides of the same coin. It means that they were taking advantage of God's mercy and forgiveness. Their hearts were going astray. They despised the gifts the Lord gave them. Their actions revealed a complete lack of faith in God's character. Again, you can reference Numbers 21, 1 through 8, as a reference to grumbling and testing God. Now, we must not think, friends, in just a parenthesis here, we must not think that in these sweeping judgments resulting in widespread death, that God was acting erratically like an out-of-control parent. The people had broken the covenant over and over again. They are not merely misguided or mistaken. They had rejected God. Indeed, they despised God. They want nothing to do with God. What we see here in judgment is not random emotional excess, but just punishment for willful defiance. Willful defiance against the covenant. Willful defiance against God's majesty and God's person. And willful defiance against their creator. You know, we are so acclimated to seeing God act with grace and mercy such that when he gives one what is due, it seems shocking and out of place to us. What was the result of this willful rejection of God? Well, this generation was banned from entering the promised land. After all they had experienced, the plagues on Egypt, the saving of their oldest sons on the night of Passover, the exodus, the daily provision of food, after all that, they wandered in a big circle for 40 years. A picture of a life going nowhere. As a matter of fact, 
in that circle, they were not very far removed from where they had left in Egypt. They could have gained so much taking that land of milk and honey, as it was described, a place of blessing, a place of prosperity, a home to them. They lost that. It would actually be their children, the next generation under Joshua's leadership that would establish the nation of Israel in large part exactly where it sits today on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. Their lives were wasted. And Paul goes backwards in time to show a negative example so the Corinthians would see that their fate could be similar. That leads us to our second question. How did sins committed hundreds of years earlier relate to the Corinthians? Now, we have to keep in mind where we've been. Remember that we've said, Paul said it's okay that when you're shopping at your local Kroger market in Corinth, don't worry if that meat had been used or sacrificed in a pagan worship service. But that's not what's happening here. something different going on. The Corinthians engaged, as we do in Christian worship, they included communion, they took the bread and the wine to remember Jesus. That was not the problem. But this was the scenario. They would go to their church on Sunday morning and take the bread, take the juice, remember Christ, and then that night or whenever it was, they participated in these pagan feasts. Why did they do that? Why did they go? Well, maybe their neighbor invited them, and they didn't want to offend their neighbor. Maybe their business associates expected them there, or they simply maybe didn't want to be left out from what everybody else was doing. Or perhaps it was just tradition. Whatever the region reason, in engaging in pagan worship, Paul says, you're worshiping demons. We should note here that Paul says that this anti-Christian false religion was animated by demons. And these pagan feasts, as we said, were not bland, amoral affairs. The ancient Jews had figured, they had reasoned, hey, we're the people of God. He doesn't mind if we play around a little bit. He doesn't mind if we tempt sin a little bit. That same smugness and spiritual arrogance is what marked the Corinthians. For they too had entered into a covenant with God. They too had been baptized and received communion. And they too figured that the practice of these Christian traditions would make them immune from God's judgment. Paul is telling them, you're wrong. You're wrong. And you're in the same danger as that Hebrew generation that lost in the desert and their lives were wasted. Well, that brings us to our third question then. How does this all relate to us? Let's take this story now and bring it to 2016. Staying true to this passage, there is no other way to to say it except by way of warning. If you're going to church, if you're giving your tithe, if you're receiving the bread and wine, if you're participating in Bible study, if you're serving in ministry, yet out there in the real world, in the marketplace, or in your bedroom, or wherever it is, you are compromising your faith, you are giving in to temptation, or you see 
the Christian faith is merely one choice in a spiritual cafeteria of equally good choices. Here's the message to you. Two messages from this passage. Number one, don't assume you are immune from God's judgment. And then secondly, find the way out. God has provided a way out. Find it. Here's some examples of this. For example, if you attend church faithfully, right? But it's tax season. Just a reminder about that. Sorry. It's tax season. Start getting after it. You attend church faithfully, but it's tax season. You found a convenient way to shield income illegally. And the fraud, the IRS. Don't assume that you're immune from God's judgment. Are you tithed 10% by the penny week in and week out, and you own your own company, but you're taking advantage of your employees? You pay them ridiculously low wages, or you don't give them the benefits due them. Don't assume that you're immune from God's judgment. Are you receive the bread and wine? You dine at the Lord's table, and you're married, yet you're spending way too much time with that attractive co-worker, and you're looking for ways to spend time with them. Oh my, what a chance meeting. Don't assume that you are immune from God's judgment. Or if you are faithful in reading God's Word, and you read it every day, but you allow yourself to watch or to read uncritically material that does not glorify God, don't assume that you are immune from God's judgment. Paul wants them to take seriously the compromise of their faith. They thought they were standing firm, but their confidence was spiritual arrogance, and it left them on shaky ground. There was great pressure to attend these pagan feasts. Maybe you and I can relate to that. There's great pressure to not only attend that office party, but to participate in the out-of-control things as it winds into the evening, or maybe it's not the office place, maybe it's that late neighborhood party, or maybe it's the out-of-town trip with your son or daughter's travel team when the party goes a little too late. Now, we tend to think, we tend to think that temptation is so unique to me. That's what we tend to think. We think that no one is carrying the financial debts that I have. So I have to adjust these figures or I have to promise this impossible delivery date. Hey, no one has my marriage or no one else knows what it is like to be single and alone. So I have to pursue this affair or I have to compromise who I am with. Hey, no one else has my children or my pressures at work. So I have to find a way to escape. Hey, no one else has had my past, so I have to live at a frenzied pace. I have to create chaos. I can't slow down. No one else has my temptations, but it's not true. Look at verse 13. Your temptations were not unlike, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, your temptations were not unlike the ancient Jews, or as a matter of fact, the people of God throughout history. And for you and for me, Every temptation that you have has been suffered by others. Knowing we are not alone, knowing we are not alone brings comfort and strength to honestly pursue the help that we need 
I've experienced this freedom many times. When I realize a temptation I have is shared by another, and in my later, older years, I've, some of those temptations are broken down to some pretty, you know, crazy things. But we'll never know this. We'll never know that others share my temptation if we do not become vulnerable and share them. You see, the vision, and this is one of the reasons why we so stress life groups here. The vision of our life groups and the friendships catalyzed by them is to create a safe and supportive environment where we can share our temptations and our sin struggles. Yes, even a safe place to confess our sins and invite others to help me remove these barriers, these spiritual barriers that keep me from growing, that keep me from relating to God honestly and freely. You know, this week in our life groups, if you're following the questions tied to the message, we ask you at the end of the group to break into smaller groups of three or four by gender, and share the temptations that you are struggling with. My goodness, there is such freedom and power there. Verse 13 says, God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. So we have to be honest about this. There's no saying that this is impossible for me. There's no saying it's impossible for me not to have sex or it's impossible for me to become less critical. It's impossible for me to become less of a fault finder of my children. I'm too young to obey God or I'm too old to change. Can't say that. Can't say that. There's no saying the devil made me do it or I have no other option but to sin. I can't help myself. Can't say that. No, God will not put you in a situation beyond your ability. And even though we share temptations uh, with someone, still your temptation, the ones that are really challenging to you, will be different than mine. Some are tempted sexually, some with greed, some with laziness and passivity, some with fault-finding, some with pride. But for each, God will provide a way of escape. By the way, that implies it will not be easy. It won't be easy. Enduring means it may be a marathon. Enduring means it may be an up and down battle. Some sins, friends, get pretty deeply ingrained in us. And that's why we can't do it. We can't do this on our own. Barclay says that the word for a way of escape is really a mountain pass with the idea of an army being surrounded by the enemy and then suddenly seeing an escape route to safety. Like a mountain pass, the way of escape is an escape, but it's not necessarily an easy way. Okay, so let's make this now very practical and very applicable. I want to share here two things that I believe are the key to resisting temptation. Remember, we're all, this is all in the context of I want to live a life of aim, of purpose, and of significance. But, we, but, but if we get detoured, if we get derailed by cravings that we can't stop, it will keep us from that goal. Okay, so two things. What is the key here to fighting temptation? Here's one. 
we have to look for a way of escape. It sounds obvious, but we must be desperate enough to be looking. One reason we do not overcome temptation is because we do not want to. We don't look for the way of escape. We don't, I mean, we don't find the way of escape because we're not looking for it. We'd rather stay right in the mess because somehow we like it. In some strange way, it comforts us in the moment, even though we know it will complicate my life and potentially compromise all the things that matter to me. When we sin, you see, our world and our vision gets very small. Wrong desires shrink our world, and our vision gets exceedingly narrow, and we deceive ourselves into thinking, if found out, God will treat me with grace, others will treat me with grace. And we foolishly separate our actions from their logical consequences and believe that somehow we can manipulate a way around those consequences and, 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 and wiggle ourselves out of it. So the first thing is, is we must look. We must look so that the world gets bigger and so that the world opens up to us and we must look so that we can find the creative things that God wants us to do to help us work out of that temptation, to find that mountain pass. I remember counseling my kids when I knew they would be facing some difficult temptations. And I said to my kids, here is a way you could get out of this temptation without offending people. You know, God does the same thing with us. He will counsel us. He will guide us if we're looking for a way out. You ever had this experience when you're taking a mountain hike and you don't notice anything cool? Like the whole thing is oblivious and you get back and you talk to your friend and they saw all these cool things that they spotted, noticed, and observed. Why did they see them and you didn't? Because they were looking for it. If you are looking, if you want it, God will provide a mountain pass for you to go through. Here's the second thing. Very important. To overcome temptation, we have to have a pattern of life, a course of life that draws every resource into me that God makes available to me. You see, for some, your spiritual experience is narrowed to fighting a single front. You are fighting a single sin that has made life uncomfortable or made life inconvenient for you. But to resist temptation, we have to draw in every resource that God provides. And that begins with living in the pattern of Christ. It means doing the things that Jesus did which includes living for others, which includes serving, which includes crucifying self, and includes living in the power of a new life, the power of the resurrection. If you're seeking to fight a singular sin on a single front and are not seeking to walk in the pattern of Christ in general, you're not going to win. You're not going to win. Because see, underneath that sin, 
underneath the sin, below the waterline, there are unmet needs, there are longings, and there is self-will, which means love for self. That self must be crucified. Your life must be set into a pattern of selflessness. Your soul must begin to be satisfied with living water. And how does that happen? How does that happen? It happens, as with Jesus, when we engage in the spiritual disciplines. And God begins to pour His Spirit into our lives such that we want more of Him and what He wants for us. And God desperately wants your satisfaction. He desperately wants to bless you. His heart aches to give you more of Himself so that we can be truly satisfied in Him. And then He is most glorified in us. God primarily uses His Word to give us His Spirit. He uses brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to strengthen us. And through God's Word, He literally gives us a piece of His mind. He gives us a piece of Himself in the same way that we use words. In the same way that we use words to convey thoughts and emotion and spirit and life, so God uses words to convey Himself to you. You know, in the early years of my marriage and in the early years of parenting especially, I had a, a, a big problem with anger. My kids forget that today. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But I remember. I remember. And I remember some just regrettable incidents where I just lost control. And I just was not, it just was not good. And I was angry. And, you know, there's something about, you know, when you work on anger, and, you know, so I would memorize some verses or I would try to have strategy. Don't be angry. You know, count the ten or whatever it was. But, but when you're looking for a mountain pass through, you've got to look below the waterline. Because you see, below anger, and this is more incidental anger, below anger, there was a massive problem with impatience. And below impatience, there was a massive problem with self-will and self-love, and getting what I want. Well, I could memorize all the verses that I want on anger. I could come up with all the strategies that I want to work on anger, but I'll tell you, one th- I'll tell you this as true as can be. If I didn't work on love for God, it wouldn't make an ounce of difference. What really needed to happen was learning not to love myself, but to love God. And when you love God, it changes everything. And when you crucify self and love God more than self, it changes everything. If we're looking for it, if we bring every resource God makes available to me, if we are loving self less and Him more, He will provide the way of escape from temptation. And then, so what? So what? So what? This is what. Then you and me we can aim our lives for what matters. And we can possess and receive the power to stay the course to the end and have a life that has meant something to God and been of value in the service of Him. And those good works, by the way, will be remembered forever. I like what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 6, verses 10. 
He wrote this, For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for Him and how you have shown your love for Him. How? By caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. What you're really living for, the things that really matter to you, the aim of your life, you know when it becomes really palpable? You know when you can taste that? You can taste it when you feel the encroachment of death. Did I waste my life? Did my life have any meaning? Was my life significant? Author Joel Mayward commented on a recent, the recent movie, probably a lot of you have seen it, it's very popular, called Revenant. Revenant means a person who has returned, especially, supposedly, from the dead. So the hero of this story pulls himself out of the grave, you've seen the trailers, after being abandoned and left dead for Left, dead for, left for dead by his companions. All throughout this story, death surrounds him in his attempt to survive the wintry North American wilderness. Death triumphs over mercy in this savage world, and the producer is trying to tell us that death is inevitable for every human being. It surrounds us, and we cannot escape it. Now, the thematic twin of The Revenant is a movie called The Grey, few years back, starring Liam Neeson. It's a movie about dying as well, about dying well. The character that Neeson plays is an oil worker, and he has taken his companions uh, on this oil, you know, to, 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 to work, but they, they crashed their plane in the Alaskan wild, and they are seeking to survive, but day by day and little by little, they are surrounded and hunted and picked off one by one by a vicious pack of wolves. In this story, nature does not care for each man or his family, but these men do not die with indifference. There is grief, there is remorse, there is evaluation of one's life and one's existence and meaning. In The Revenant, the hero is obsessed by the memories of his deceased wife and son and by a need for vengeance. His life really has no meaning beyond vengeance. He does not fear death. He's a walking tomb, Mayward writes. For the Neeson character in the gray, he too had lost his wife. And now that he has failed to save any of the survivors of his company, his purpose and meaning now have vanished as well into the gray. When there's nothing to live for, he charges into death headlong without any hesitation. Neither man fears death, and each turns to God in some of their final words. Yet, is there repentance? Is there self-surrender? Is there love for God over love for self? I don't want to spoil the ending of either of these movies for you. In one case, we are left uncertain, though at least our hero does come to the place of realizing that vengeance is morally bankrupt. In the other case, the hero looks into the heavens and curses God beyond anything Job said. And when his curse is met with silence, he mutters, I'll do it myself in his final act of, act of, his final act of life. 
He does not bend his will in the end. The author contrasts both of these movies to another movie in 1952. It's a Japanese word. It means to life. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. I did not get a chance to check with my wife. Aikairu is my best attempt at it. I-K-I-R-U. The hero in this story is a man named Watanabe. He too is pursued by nature, but not by grizzly bears or wolves. He has an incurable disease. And confronted with his impending death, he chooses neither despair nor anger nor vengeance as his primary motivation to live. Rather, he is driven by personal legacy and living for others beyond himself. He has an experience of repentance, a 180-degree turnaround, for he was formerly obsessed with financial gain at any cost. This man is inspired by a conversation from a young woman to fund the creation of a playground for the children in the city. This man is facing death without fear, but vengeance and defiance are not found with him. They've been replaced by contentment, satisfaction, and even joy. He has seen and experienced what it meant to live. Thus he can approach death in peace. And so our author concludes for us, sitting right here today, In this season of Lent, as we begin to turn our minds and our hearts towards the cross, towards the resurrection, towards the Last Supper, we too consider the death of one human being. A man who approached death with a mixture of fear, a mixture of forgiveness, and a mixture of faithfulness. And this man voluntarily entered death and conquered it with resurrection. And so we too can approach this Easter season with humble confidence, with repentance, turning our hearts to God, remembering that blood has been shed on our behalf that we might gain abundant life. Pray with me. Father, this morning, whatever our situation, whatever we brought with us here, whatever ache, our conflict, our worry, our fear, our longing, our confusion, our pain that we brought this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you that Christ died for us. And in every moment, And in every moment of our lives, that shed blood becomes for us the very rock of our salvation. The very place of permanence and rootedness that we're searching for. The place of safety and quiet and peace that we need. Father, bring every soul here to that place where they can experience and receive the healing, the grace, the love, 
that you intend for them. Through Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening and joining our mission. For more content or to learn more about us, visit linworthroadchurch.com.